0: Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today we'll be talking with our special guest, Rod McGarry. Rod McGarry is a fly fishing luminary and a household name in the Maine fly casting community. Rod has worked as a fly casting professional since 1991. Rod was raised in Rhode Island. His father was a police officer and his mother was a school teacher. Rod is a graduate of Brown University and was a decorated hockey goalie. In his professional career, Rod worked in the life insurance industry in Providence, Rhode Island, Andover, Massachusetts, and Chicago, Illinois. It was through this work that he gained an interest in public speaking and used those skills to perfect his evolving interest through coaching and mentoring. Following his retirement in 2000, Rod came to Maine, living in the Back Cove neighborhood of Portland with his wife, Priscilla. He was immediately recruited by L.L. Bean and the Outdoor Discovery School to work hand in hand with Macaulay Lord, teaching fly casting at all levels for the company. Rod was a familiar voice, offering advice and credibility for customers that would call in on the L.L. Bean fly fishing hotline. Rod has an innate ability to captivate an audience and is one of the most engaging conversationalists I've ever encountered. Rod has a unique ability to prepare his presentations through careful research and always offers his audience an engaging dialogue that is fun to participate in. Rod has an ability to look clearly at his students and make his students walk away feeling talented and skilled, bearing high confidence and self-esteem. Rod has earned his way up through the ranks of the Federation of Fly Fishers, starting as a basic fly casting instructor, later testing and passing his Master Fly Casting Certification, and eventually receiving the prestigious Mentoring Award from the Federation of Fly Fishers Casting Board of Governors. In 2009, Rod was awarded the Hangar Memorial Life Award that recognized him for his noteworthy contribution to enhance fly fishing through instruction and education. It comes with the distinguished pleasure to introduce the Flyline Podcast audience to my coach, friend, and mentor, Mr. Rod McGarry. Rod, welcome to Flyline Podcast. You got it, Michael.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Uh, Well, we are delighted to have you. I've always had you on my list. I knew that you'd be someone that would be a great... uh, a contributor to uh, the conversation of what Maine Fly Fishing is and who are the people that make it that way. Thank you. But uh, let's go back to uh, the early days. I, I, I always like to share, uh, have our guests share the things that they don't know about Rod McGarry. And one thing that probably most people don't uh, recognize immediately is, what's your background? When uh, Where would you grow up? What was your family like?
1: I was born and brought up in Cranston, Rhode Island. Very close Irish-American family. We didn't have a car until I was probably uh, 12 years old. And so as a result, we were a very tight-knit family. We went to, uh, my grandmother and grandfather lived uh, maybe four blocks from us, five. And my grandmother was bedridden. And so every Sunday, we walked to their home. And we would spend the afternoon there and have an evening meal. And my father had uh, seven brothers and sisters, and they too all lived nearby. And so we would go there. And my grandfather had been pretty successful in life, and he brought in entertainers, many from Ireland, uh, storytellers, musicians, and every Sunday afternoon, uh, that's what we did. We would go to my grandmother's house and grandfather, and uh, they'd wheel my grandmother's bed out into a living room, and entertainers would come in and uh, share some things with us. It was a lot of fun. So as what was her illness? right? Uh, arthritis. Oh, yeah, severe arthritis, yeah. yeah. And um, that, that was always a great way. So we were a very tight-knit family. And because we didn't have a car, we walked most places. And it was okay to do. And we, we, we were brought up that way. My mother uh, was Irish-American as well. And uh, she came from Fall River, Massachusetts. And we did the same thing. Your father was a police officer. Mm-hmm. My father was a police officer, my mother a school teacher, but my mother did not go back to teaching uh, while my brothers and I were young. She didn't go back to teaching school until we were in high school. She was an elementary school teacher, taught first grade, and but she stopped teaching when we were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and one, my older brother was three years old, though, and my younger brother a year and a half younger than me, and so that My mother had us all at home when we were in elementary school. What a gift.
0: Yeah, it was a great thing to do. Yeah, my mother raised my brother and I, and I'll always... I mean, we turned out to be better people as a result.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah, It really worked well. Yeah. So, Bridgeton Academy? Yeah, I came to Bridgeton Academy because I I did not do that well in high school. Oh. Um, uh, Lots of reasons why. I was interested in other things and not that academic. And when I went to apply to colleges, I found out that I couldn't get into the colleges that I wanted to go to. And um, I really wanted to um, go to a good college, so I came to Bridgeton Academy in North Bridgeton, Maine in 1956 and um, got everything I wanted out of it. It was a grand school, wonderful education, great academic program, uh, very strong sports program, really, really good. I played football, hockey, and track. And uh, our hockey team was uh, superb, I, I think, when two, three, four of us were captains in college uh, when we eventually went to college. That, that was really something. And I really enjoyed it. Great school. We really got a lot out of it.
0: And for the, uh, for the audience, bridget Academy is kind of unique where it's not a four-year program, it's a one-year program. That's correct. But it was a four-year program when
1: I went there. It was. Well, yeah, uh, it us was about that. It was a four-year that. program. Okay. So it, 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 it was a four-year program. There were very few people that were freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And there was a, uh, probably a, a third of them uh, were, were freshmen, sophomores, uh, juniors, and seniors. And the rest, uh, uh, two-thirds of them, were postgraduate. And they were the people who were like me didn't yeah. get done what they should have got done got before then and wanted to go to different schools and colleges and uh, as a result um, came there. And we had a fantastic coach. Uh, our, our hockey coach was an All-American in college right. at uh, Michigan. Yeah. And uh, John Fabello was a great coach. He brought up great people. And we really benefited from that.
0: Well, and, You you
1: clearly benefited from it uh, because you got accepted at Brown University. I did. I did. I, I, I Truth be known, I really wanted to go to Bowdoin um, because I loved Maine, um, but Brown played Division One, and uh, I wanted to be a Division One player, and uh, so uh, the schools I applied to for Division I were Brown, Boston College, uh, St. Lawrence, and Yale, and I, that's what I wanted to do. And you did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. What did
0: you study at Brown?
1: English literature. Oh, I loved smart. it. I, I I love reading. Uh, I like uh, novels. I like poetry, and I majored in English literature, and I really enjoyed it. Benefited from it too.
0: Yeah. yeah. Tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about your uh, your hockey in college.
1: You, you um, were goalie. Yes, I got the end of that train. I was a goaltender, and I loved it, and I really uh, was lucky to play. Uh, again, we had a fantastic coach, like John Fabella was my great coach at BA. Uh, Jim Fullerton was uh, our coach at Brown. And uh, Jim is inducted into the uh, U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, his coaching. He had great skills, great technical advantages, and we played uh, some fantastic games. We We played against top-notch teams in the U.S. and in Canada. And he was very much oriented toward uh, our playing them. And it, it, we really benefited from it. Uh, I was fortunate because you get to play against those kinds of teams, you do very well. And I was uh, lucky to make All-Ivy, all Knowing, All-East, a couple of tournament all-star games and a most valuable player in a couple of those games. And it was just a wonderful experience to have to play with people of that caliber.
0: Did your Nothing. academic... Uh endeavors improved for you once you got to college? Do you feel like you were starting to get on the right path? I mean, you said you didn't do as well in, in high
1: school? or did, did I didn't do as well in high school, and I, I didn't do as well as, as, a, as a freshman in college. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was just average. Okay. But once uh, that you got to be a sophomore, junior and senior, where you could direct your attention toward what you wanted to study as opposed to what you had to take yeah. uh, I did well, I was a Dean's List student and I, I really enjoyed it and I benefited from that too because it helped me win a graduate scholarship a Ford Foundation fellowship uh, so that I studied for a master's degree after college and um, that was just great and it was all paid for by somebody else uh, so that was a good thing to have happen no, I enjoyed that Wonderful. Much yeah And
0: then you uh, started getting into your professional career early on.
1: Uh, Yes, I did. Um, uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a teacher uh, or a a professor eventually, but that's what my academic work was intended to do. But, But I left my graduate program early to become the executive secretary of the board of trustees of state colleges in Rhode Island. And I was the person who interacted for the board with the presidents of uh, the Rhode Island College of Education and the University of Rhode Island. And as a result, got very embedded in the academic world and found out that it was fascinating, very interesting. But at the same time, I really loved the outdoor world. And there was a day that came at uh, Thanksgiving time when the schools were all closed and I told the chairman of the board that, 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 that I would like to take a vacation he said, well you've already had one this year and I said, but you know I want to go to Maine so I could go deer hunting and he said, well, well no you, you've had your vacation and um, that was it Yeah. but that day after Thanksgiving um, when I left him a note on his desk I found a book that he told me was really helpful to him, when he was, uh, you know, a young man getting started in his career, and I read the book, and it was about uh, how to be successful, and I thought to myself, "Boy, I'd like to do this." And it was written by a man named Frank Betcher, and Betcher found his success because he got into the life insurance business. I know some people in the life insurance business, and um, when I get home that Friday night, I told Priscilla, "I'm going to be late getting home because I'm reading a book." And she said, "What do you mean you're reading a book? Bring the book home. There's nobody there." And I did, and I read the book again that weekend. So I read it twice in one weekend. And then on Monday, I started my search to find out how I could get into the life insurance business. And in Rhode Island, there were some people that were very good at it. And I was lucky enough to hitch on with a half dozen of them in an agency, and I loved the work. So um, um by the 7th of January, You know, following that Thanksgiving, I was in the life insurance business. And what is the life insurance business? The life insurance business was calling on people to help them establish a plan for financial security. And I liked that very much. Now, the fellows that I worked with were principally involved in working with businesses. They were helping them set up business programs for key men, for group insurance, for pension, qualified plans. And I liked that kind of approach. And so I said, I'm in. And I did, and I and I loved it, and I enjoyed it very, very much. And that's what got me going.
0: In Providence, Rhode Island? Yes, I did. And I then did. you went on to Andover, Mass?
1: I did. I went to Andover, Mass, to run a special unit up there so that I could get involved in the management of other people. Ah. I became a pretty good salesman, qualified for awards in the Million Dollar Roundtable, uh, which was a real earmark of success. And I wanted to do better and I could attract some people and I did recruit some people to the business and help them get going but in order to really have that advantage I had to go someplace where I could instead of being specialized in, in pension and qualified plans and things like that where I could do more general work so I, I, I the knowing life uh, gave me an opportunity to work in a branch office and and of a mass, establish it, start from scratch. Just, there was nothing there. Uh, rent the space and build an office there. And I did do that. And then I took an opportunity to come to Maine to work with the State Mutual Life to be the general agent for them. I had a partnership with Bill Daly in Portland, Maine. And was able to succeed him when he retired. And that's what brought me back to Maine. And I loved it. Really enjoyed
0: it. So you're working in um, in life insurance. And you, you start thinking about doing some consulting. Am
1: I, am I getting that right? That's correct. Uh, I, I wanted to do that because I really enjoyed recruiting people to the business, helping them train and develop, and helping them get going in the business. And uh, I was pretty good at it. And I was pretty good at uh, speaking, making presentations. And my company offered me a chance to go to their home office and become in charge of their management development programs mm-hmm. in, in Worcester, Mass., And there, I would work with the people that were located throughout the country in helping them have better management practices, help them build their recruiting, training, and development programs. And I really enjoyed that, and and very much so. Um, It reached a point where I I, I liked it so much that uh, I left it and went to be on my own just to be an independent contractor and just to work with all sorts of companies to help them promote uh, sales, marketing, and uh, public speaking. And I was a pretty good public speaker. So I just traveled and spoke for four years, I guess. And uh, then I got recruited back to the State Mutual Life by the man who became president. Uh, He'd left the Fidelity um, uh, Mutual Fund business uh, to come and head up that company. And he said, why don't you come back and work with us and just work with our top sales people and our top management people. So that I did. I worked with the top third of the general agents in the company and the top hundred people in sales and um, traveled, worked with them, and helped them all be better, lift them up a level, so to speak. And I, I Co- really did coaching. enjoy that. Coaching, that's it. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Ch- Chicago? Chicago. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and I went to Chicago because we had a real fine organization there there were 70 people in it and the the fellow was going to leave Mm -hmm. and gosh he recruited them all there and they just thought gosh if he leaves and goes away what happens to them so they said what could you do so I went to Chicago and my job there was to keep the 70 people that were there to train and develop some more and to find a successor to take over so I spent 5 years in Chicago and then uh, it didn't take me five years to do it, but they gave me five years to do it. I left after four years and, and, and came back to Maine. I retired early, so to speak. And I came to Maine uh, so I could go into the fishing business. Yeah. Isn't that something? It is something. I loved fly fishing. It was something I, I learned as a Boy Scout when I was in Rhode Island. Something I liked and practiced. Uh, tide flies, liked fishing, liked casting. Liked helping other people get going in it. And as a result, uh, captivated by it. And I knew what a wonderful opportunity there was here in Maine to work with L.L. L. Bean uh, because I'd met some people who had done that and uh, got... Tied up with uh, Macaulay Lord, mm-hmm. who was a master fly casting instructor. I would met Macaulay through the Federation of Fly where I'd done some program work with them, and I was a certified fly casting instructor. I uh, attained that you, level of you,
0: you. had done a fair amount with the Federation even before you retired and came to Maine.
1: Yes, I did. When I was in when I was in Chicago, now, how did uh, you get introduced to that? How did you how did your roads cross? Do good story. Um, if you've ever been on the road and had to go someplace away from home uh, and do something uh, awkward. That's how I get started. I went to Chicago. Uh, I took a plane out of Portland, Maine at uh, 7 in the morning, landed in Chicago at 9, and told the people that there that I was there to take over. And they just looked at me. And uh, I brought enough stuff to last me a month so I could stay in a hotel and tell them that's what I was going to do. Didn't know I was going to stay there for those four years that I stayed there. No, I just knew that my assignment then was to go there and keep it intact. Um, and so I brought everything with me. I brought my fly tying materials. I brought a couple of fishing magazines and books. And after I'd been there two weeks um, living in a hotel and and talking to people every day and trying to keep things going Um, I read one of the books that my daughter gave me for Christmas and it talked about a fly shop in not far away and I said gee I wonder where that is so I looked it up and I called them up and asked how to get there and and they told me how to get there so I did I drove to this nice little town about oh 20 miles away and when I got there I walked in the door there were maybe 6 or 8 people at the table tying flies and one man said, here's a guy that just walked in. He knows what kind of fly I'm tying, even if you guys don't. And I just looked at him and I said, were you talking to me? He said, yes, I was. I said, Were well, you tying a pomachini bill? He stopped. How do you know? I said, well, I've tied them. I don't tie it as well. It's the way you're tying it here. but I <laughs> I love it. I, 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 I know what it is. And I know how to do it. Come over here, he said for a minute. Sit down with us and tell us who you are and what who, you're doing. Who was he right? His name was Art Major. And I knew who he was. He didn't know who I was. But I knew who he was because he was a board-certified master flycasting instructor. Wow. And he was the only one in Illinois. right. And I knew who he was because I was interested in getting certified, and I had applied to the Federation of Flyfishers to sit for a test in certification. It was a written test and a performance test in um, uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, that 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 summer, June. Oh. And uh, in, in in talking with him, and I told him I knew who he was, and how come I knew who he was. He said, "Why don't Why don't you come and visit with us sometime? we we, we have a club here." We're a Federation of Fly Fishers Club, and uh, we tie flies, and you can see that, and they invited me to go casting with them, and they were casting in a park nearby. This was in Glen Ellen, Illinois, and, um, and he said, gee, he said, you, you, you could make it. He said, do you mind if I could become your coach? And I said, I'd love to have you oh, help yeah, me. Absolutely. And so he was the first mentor. I'd taken some fly casting lessons, uh, that I'd learned how to fish in, or fly cast in, in Boy Scouts with a troop committee man we had, who was huh? a, an avid fly fisher in Rangeley. And I learned to tie some flies from an, another fellow I met in the Boy Scout camp, uh, Carl Richardson, because he showed me some great techniques and how to do it. And I was in. And so um, I worked out with, 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 with the club, with Art Measure and some others, and then I went to Idaho Falls, Idaho, that summer and took my certification test. And uh, I, it was harder than any test I took in college or graduate school, I thought uh gosh, uh, mm, I think only a third of us passed the written exam. Yeah. And then we had to do a performance mm-hmm. exam, which we had to, and it took about, uh, there were about uh, 20 or 30 items we had to demonstrate and, and answer some questions. And uh, it was a very difficult test. And only half of us passed that. So that was an accomplishment. And uh, boy, it really got me started. It did. And I, I want to talk to you more in the second
0: half of the uh, of the podcast about these two different exams both the basic and master so i'll have you hold off on explaining a little bit more sure. about that yep. now yep. but i think we're also at a good place to uh, take a short break rod and uh, come back and i want to talk about your work at ll bean and, and all the fly casting instruction because where we're at right now is we're at the takeoff point of who rod McGarry is in, into the state of maine oh, and yeah. i'm excited to get into that part yeah i'd love to talk about what we did to Bean. wonderful program thanks This Flyline Flashback focuses on Leon Leonwood Bean. Leon Bean was born in the town of Greenwood, Maine on October 13, 1872. At 19, he attended a year-long business course at Kent's Hill School, paying his way by selling soap. In his outdoor activities, his boots would become soaked with water, So he set out to resolve this inconvenience and developed plans for a waterproof boot, which was a combination of lightweight leather for the upper part and rubber on the bottom. Of the first 100 pair of boots that were introduced, 90% failed and the original design was scrapped. He took out a loan in the amount of $400 and set off to Boston, where he offered the United States Rubber Company the remainder of his loan to produce a better quality boot for him. With better quality boots available, Bean set up a boot shop in his brother's basement in Freeport, Maine. His skills and trials as an entrepreneur, along with his promise to return 100% money back on all items, were detailed by many local and national newspapers of the time. By 1917, he had sold enough of his boots to buy a dedicated building for his shop on the main street of Freeport. In 1918, Bean realized the importance of patenting his invention. As the patent was granted, he moved on to inventing and improving more outdoor equipment and expanding his store to what LL Bean is today. The company began as a one room operation selling a single product, the main hunting shoe, also known as duck boots and later as bean boots, and mainly sold them to hunters. By 1912, he was selling the Bean boot through a four-page mail-order catalog and the boots remain a staple of the company's outdoor image. During World War II, Bean served as a consultant for the United States Army and Navy, while his company manufactured a version of the main hunting shoe for military use. Today, L.L. Bean has education programs connected to many of its retail outlets to support the outdoor interests of its customers. Customers can sign up to participate in a number of outdoor activities all equipment and instruction are provided. Activities include archery, clay shooting, fly casting, and sea kayaking, snowshoeing, and cross-country skiing. Along with a number of retail and outlet stores, the company maintains its flagship store on Main Street in Freeport, Maine. This branch, originally opened in 1917, has been open 24 hours a day since 1951. It is regarded that at the flagship store in Freeport, there are no locks on the doors. They are always open for business. And now, back to the second half of our episodes. Well, let's pick up where we left <coughs> off. i okay. um, not sure where we left off. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, where we left off is you were oh, just. Oh, you're going to come to Maine. You were just coming to Maine.
1: Yep. yep. And they tell did. us
0: a little bit about uh, how you. I mean, did you approach L.L. Bean? Did they approach you? How did that all go? I, like? and, uh,
1: I approached L.L. Bean. Um, and uh, I approached L.L. Bean and I asked some of the people I I, I found out worked at L.L. Bean how I could get in there and Macaulay Lord was one who when we were at a meeting down in Tennessee uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee um, he said when you come back to Maine he said you ought to call on us because you'd like working with us uh, when I met Mac I was still living in, in, in Chicago and I told him I was going to move back to Maine probably soon uh, and he said let me know when you're coming back because you could work with us and I really enjoyed that and so I think I, I was I came back to Maine I remember watching the Memorial Day Parade in Park Ridge, Illinois where we lived and I was back to Maine that next week and uh, two weeks later I was working for them uh, I had an interview and an evaluation and because I'd become a certified fly casting instructor when I lived in Chicago that, that, that was a good thing And they got me involved. And Bean was just a great place. They had wonderful programs.
0: And the facility
1: the facilities really set up for it. Oh absolutely. The the fog farm. The fog farm was just great because they had casting pools. They had fields where you could work, where the grass was cut on a regular basis, and you could line up people so they could learn to cast on the grass, and they could learn to cast in the pools. And we had classrooms. Yes. Not only did we have classrooms, um, and and the program had been established years before. I'd known of people who'd gone there, and they told me how they learned about entomology. Uh, because what would happen is that on the day of, if we were going to have a weekend program, somebody would be assigned the task to collect some bugs, and they'd have to go to a nearby stream or a pond and collect some bugs so that we could tell people what they were, show them how they worked and lived, had a slideshow to accompany it, and it was just fascinating to be able to show them the bugs and then tell them, we're going to tie some flies, and we're going to use those flies to fish with and at that time, our, our schools were two and a half days long. And that was really good because it gave us a chance to get to know the people better. Uh, because you, could, you, you had lunch with them for, for three days. And so, it was just a fun thing to do.
0: So hmm. this was, uh, for the audience, this is if you wanted to learn how to fly fish, you could commission L.L. Bean's Outdoor Discovery School, and you would go there uh, for a couple of days yep. and learn about fly casting, uh, probably knots. Yeah, tell us more. We
1: had we we had a whole program that involved uh, knots, lines. We would show people what the rod was, what the line was, what the reel was, how they worked, and help demonstrate what they were. We'd show them different sizes and all culminating toward what we were going to have them use. And we introduced them to six weight, weight forward rods and lines with a seven and a half foot leader. Perfect. And we would have them working out with those, yep. and they would learn how they worked before we even tried to fly on. But when we get when we would usually fish on Sunday in the afternoon, we had a pond. But before we fished a pond, we used to take them to a nearby river down in Yarmouth, and we'd show them. We would show them how to fish down there, and then we would give them the opportunity to fish down there. We didn't put them in the water, but we would let them fish from the shore. We would be fishing in the water and show them how we do it. Then we would, when we stocked our own pond, we'd take them to our pond so that they could walk around on the shore. They never really got wet. And we would go around with them to help them. Uh, in those days, we might have had 30 people in the class, and we would have six instructors because we worked on a ratio of five to one. And that really worked out very, very well. And as a result, they would get to see a different instructor and a different instructor would get to see a different fly caster. So that they got some very good help and counsel. We were very thorough about what we, what we did and eventually it got to the point where everybody who worked there was a certified fly casting instructor. Macaulay Lord was uh, the head fly casting instructor and he was very thorough and very detailed. Um, he personally was just like a video camera I mean he could look at somebody and he could quickly analyze what it is that they're doing where they might have been making a mistake or where they were really good and he could focus on that interestingly enough he did institute uh, filming not right, not hard film but video filming somebody so that we would video them casting and then we would critique them But the critiques weren't long. One or two things they do well, very well. Yes. And one thing they might consider doing to be better. Right. And that was just great. That really worked well. Now, I said that they were three-day classes. And there came the time in successive years when Bean said, you know what, maybe we could attract more people if we ran the classes on just two days, Saturday and Sunday. So they didn't have to come on Thursday night to be here to work with you on Friday. And so Mac said that, Mac meaning Macaulay Lord, said we're going to have to cut some things out. And so they started to cut and they invited us to participate. And one of the things that they were going to cut was was videotaping. And I said, no, don't do that. And, and, And Macaulay jumped in and said, you know what? Why do you say that? And I said because they can see what they're doing. Most of the time they can't see what they're doing, but we can, and that's how we coach them. And he said, you know, I I I agree with you. I got to tell you this. He is probably the foremost authority on videotaping people for fly casting today. Just because I hadn't thought of that, he did there. I will tell you this. He still does special programs for the Federation of Fly Fishers, running how to use. Your iPhone. How to use your iPad oh. to help somebody fly cast. McCulloch could take his iPhone and he can uh, picture somebody doing that and he can draw with his hands. Um, The things that he did helped him do research to determine where could I do this? How could I make a mark on this program or that program? And he became fascinated with it. And as a result, he's taught so many other people how to do it. There isn't an instance where we can't do it. Because if a person can see what he's doing in a video program, he has a better understanding than if you're just telling him what he's doing. That's exactly right. And it's in every one of the programs that they do, and, and, and Macaulay Lord is the reason why. He is very analytical. Now, I know that you met one of the other guys that is really good at it. Goody Hill. Yeah. Goody Hill was a physician, and he and Macaulay are the same way. Yeah. They're like an x-ray machine. They can see things with their eye, that we don't quickly recognize, and then they say, well, let me show it to you on video, and they can pinpoint it. They can show them what the casting arc is on video, and they can draw a line and say, no, if your hand goes back beyond here, you can see that you're taking something away from the cast. And so that people can say, wow, yes. this, is, this is interesting. And it, it, it works like a charm. It really does. And it becomes a a wonderful teaching technique. Um, You could use it if you're working with somebody on a remote basis. Yeah, absolutely. You you say, just send me a copy. Videotape yourself. Have somebody videotape you, and then just send me a copy. I, you know, you've got some beautiful dogs here today, bird dogs. Oh, thank you. And I recall my dog Daisy, and I was asking Priscilla, my wife, to videotape me when I was getting ready for a master's exam and I had Priscilla videotaping me I was working at Payson Park in yep. Portland, Maine yep. and I had the camera and every time that I would say to Priscilla "Now videotape me we'd have the dog with us and the dog would start to run away and as Priscilla turned to shout at the dog she'd turn with the camera and I wouldn't get a good shot <coughs> Excuse me. And, and, and what's interesting is that all of a sudden you say well wasn't that unique because I said now wait a minute you know you could just watch my backcast if you'll do that if you'll just turn there, and I can only see the back cast. And that way, I could see my back cast, she could just videotape my forward cast, then she could come up close to me or stand further away, and you get to see a lot. Uh, Remember how much you liked the Gordie Hill? Yeah. Gordie was my lead examiner when I got my master's designation down in Florida. And there were some others there who were observing and that was always fascinating I I didn't mind being observed you know I'd been a goaltender and and people were always watching what you did so I didn't mind being observed by other people and what Gordy did was when, when we were casting down there Gordy said can you turn and cast the other way I said certainly I can so I just turned around and cast the other way and he said thank you very much And then he looked at me and said, do you know why I asked you to cast another way?" I said, uh, I'm going to take a guess, uh, because this way I was casting against a building. And you could probably see my rod stops as they were uh, against that building. And uh, you looked at me both ways. He said, that's exactly right. Thank you very much. Yeah, Yeah, he was was just great. I remember one time watching him uh, when I tested with him on another occasion. I worked with he and uh, uh, Tom Jones down in Florida for a couple of schools they ran. Priscilla and I went to Florida. Well, we went for a couple of months in the winter. And it wasn't that much fun, so we did it, I think, for four years. And and we said we'd rather stay in Maine because we can ski and play and tie flies. But Gordy would be pushing flies off his desk and watching them drop and timing them. How long did it take to oh, drop? Yeah. And then he'd push it off the top of a ladder. Yeah. And he was a technician. And Macaulay is the same kind of technician. Exactly. Those two were, were like x-ray physicians. So fantastic.
0: For the listening audience, Gordy Hill is, as Rod described, he's a physician from um, uh, Florida who is, I would regard him... To be the same ilk as what Albert Einstein is to science, Gordy Hill is to fly casting. In terms of understanding it, right? Yes, Defining he, did. It. yes he did. Yes, and he did. And what yeah. Rod was just talking about of uh, sliding flies, he was doing that for a reason. That had, I mean, it was all about the science of it behind. It, it needed a definition. The definition needed to be accurate, right?
1: Yes, it absolutely did. And yeah.
0: I was engaged with Gordy Hill for probably six years with his. Uh, what was the the, ch- the chat? That he we did was, the study group. The study group, right? This is so, fantastic. So if you're if you're, uh, you know, trying to you're working with people like Rod and I have both done, uh, trying to make them better casters. This is invaluable information. Unbelievable. you know. And, Unbelievable. and yeah. people. You'll meet people who are a natural flycaster, and they're very good, but oftentimes they don't know what they're doing, and what by taking this step of kneeling at the, at the feet of the masters like Gordy Hill, which you and I have both done. Yep, we did. Um, yep. you truly understand what you're seeing. you're able to talk about it in a meaningful way, and then you're able to offer that to the student because you're speaking about something you understand.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not
0: just, I think they're doing, I think their back cast is here. No, you know
1: their back cast is here. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Gordy used every device that you could use. I recall one time when we were working in uh, um, Colorado, and he was running a class that was adjacent to mine, and he brought a stepladder out just to show students that if you gain a little bit of perspective by standing higher, you can see what somebody else is doing. Or if you move a little bit back further, and what he was doing, he was trying to help them find better ways that they could see what it is that somebody else is doing. And he was a great practitioner of that. That's the same thing that Mac did with the video. Yeah. I have another
0: quick Gordy Hill story, and then we'll move on. But I remember, like, he just had, a a like you said, perspective. He could look at things differently. So when uh, Topher Brown was presenting to our group about... um, spay fishing mm. saltwater i remember gordy stopping him and saying now hang on how do you land a tarpon with a 12 or 14 foot rod think about that how do you do it mm. and so he just was one of these guys who would look at things differently you know to yes. say well to cast and catch the fish is part of it but how are you going to land that fish i mean how are you going to bring in a 60 pound fish with a 12-foot pole. It's just the physics
1: of it are going to be difficult, right? Yep, yep. And, and Gordy was that way and he loved to do things like that. And he was... He actually did a lot of experimentation and it was always fun to be with somebody who questions things like that. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to work with guys like Gordy and Mac and you can learn a tremendous amount from them. Uh, and, and to get to be an examiner with them. In the winters that Priscilla and I went to Florida, uh, we stayed in Venice, Florida... And then I would take a week and I would go down to the Keys, and Gordy and Tom ran a program down at Big Pine Key. And I would go down there and I would be an examiner. I would not be on the faculty, because one thing that you couldn't do, you couldn't teach somebody how to do something, be their faculty person, and then examine them. So I would go down there and I would examine for them. Uh, to have people complete the test, both their certified casting instructor and their master casting Let, instructor. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's
0: define the difference between the two, Rod, because when when I took the basic class, there's nothing basic about this class. No, there isn't.
1: No, no. no. I, I think, I, hopefully I said earlier, that when I took my first in Idaho Falls, Idaho, I thought it was more difficult than anything I'd taken in college or graduate school. Exactly. Because, because. You, you were being judged by two or three different people on what happened mechanically and that was just fascinating but in addition you had to be able to describe what it was that you were doing yes. and the description had to match what it was you were doing with your hand, arm, rod and line and that's what uh, I, I need to tell you this, that there are many people who like Gordy and Mac that I spoke about who could see things visually many are physicians because they can see things Quickly, They have great eyesight and they can observe mechanically things that you do mm-hmm. and that was really really helpful. But the difference between the masters and, and, and the basic is that the masters is, is more extensive and it covers not basic casting but things that you might do beyond that. I love for example to make curve casts. I love to make wrinkled casts. I think they are so much more fun because we learn that the fly is going to behave differently in the water depending on how you make it land, and how you either incorporate the line or do not incorporate the line in water or on the water. And what happens with the master casting is that you get to examine them in more detail with more complicated casts and with more definitive examples of what it is that they're doing. And saying that, you get to work with people from all over the world. That's what was fascinating. I worked with people from England, Ireland, uh, the Philippines, Canada, Canada uh, Australia, yeah. Canada. And in, and in Canada, I've done a lot of work in Canada just because they're so close to us. But the great thing that, we, that I've done there is I've worked with Francophiles who don't speak English and I don't speak French. But we do it through an interpreter. And it's been just a ton of fun to go up there and go to work and be working with somebody in another language Mm -hmm. and having an interpreter who is is a master casting instructor, you know, feedback to us or feedback to the candidate what it is that we're talking about. And it's been a very, very rich experience. But by the same token, you get to see how differently they fish. In Canada, they're more likely to use a heavier line than we are. Yes, they're more likely to use a seven weight, which we don't use very much here at no. all, and they're using it for fresh water, but they're getting bigger fish. They are. And they're having a bigger fight with them. And isn't that interesting? And yet, when you go down south, as you found out, they're, when they're talking about what they're using for carbon, that's entirely different. Entirely. You can't believe the weight of the lines down there and how they're doing it. And when you get to talk to the people from England who might be using four weights... You say, my goodness, isn't that even entirely different? But the great thing is that that through the Federation of Flyfishers and through the work that we did, um, we've got to meet everybody that ever wrote a book or runs a website or something like that and and get to see them. Um, And when you leave your basic casting and go to master casting, before you can be one of those people who judges other people's casting and certifies them or not certifies them, you have to work with a master caster. I was lucky enough to get to work with Simon Gosworth. Of course. Because he was such a good caster. And I was lucky enough to have been a student of his in previous programs. So for the audience, Simon Gosworth is uh, from
0: England. Uh, He was a championship and probably recognized as uh, the finest two-handed and spay caster. Um, and I've also met him, and he's a gentleman. Uh, he's brilliant. He works for Rio Fly Lines. That's correct. And he uh, he's, a, he's a friend of, of a lot of people in the industry. Yeah. Um, the thing I want to talk about, uh, just touch on real quick, Rod, which I think was a departure. I never achieved a master's level certification, but I'd done the basic. But I studied for the master's for years and years, and you were a big part of that as well. And the thing that I enjoyed the most out of studying for it was how much you learned about tippet diameter, tackle, fly lines. You have to understand what a spring creek is versus a tailwater versus uh, a freestone. The things that you don't think about that just come up in conversation, you have to define these as a master, right?
1: Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You you do. T- take a conversation. It takes cash. Not C-A-S-H, but K-A-S-H. Knowledge. K. Attitude. A, skills, S, and H, habits. And the interesting thing is that when you do that, all of a sudden, it's totally different because you have to spend a good deal more time reading, observing, and practicing. And practicing is just tremendous fun because you get to experiment with each line to see how it is that they behave. Why did that happen? Which way is the wind blowing? How can I watch my back cast if I can't turn my head or if I shouldn't turn my head? Uh, these are all things that are wonderful to do. What do I do if the wind comes up? What do I do if the wind goes down? I know. How do I use a bigger fly or a smaller fly? Yeah. Suppose I want it to float, suppose I want it to sink, yeah. And and how do the leaders work? What knots work well. Yeah. And that's just so much fun to do. And that knowledge, attitude, skills and habits is something that you really focus on. We've been fortunate enough to read so much about it yeah. and then practice it and learn it from the pros that we've worked with. That's a tremendous amount of fun.
0: I think that's the part that a lot yeah. of recreational uh, fly fishermen don't take advantage of is the amount of knowledge that's written knowledge that's yep. available for us. On, I mean, you could you could only look at entomology alone oh, yes. and spend the rest of your life reading about people that have written about it. And for you and I, our interest has always been fly casting. Yes it, it right? yes, it has. And yeah. because of that, when we're out on the river and I see someone struggling or the wind comes up, yeah. they think I'm brilliant for saying well, if the wind's in your face, you're going to cast high in the back and low in the front. And conversely, if the wind's at your back, you're going to cast low on the bet, right? Yes,
1: isn't it funny? So, but they,
0: well, you don't think about it, but that's the solution to the problem. Yep. And,
1: go ahead. That's just fantastic. I remember one time that I I was doing a private lesson for L.L. Bean, and I had a client come down from uh, South Paris, Maine, and he really wanted to fish in smaller brooks, and he said, but, that, you know, I, I can't cast that far, there's just too much. And I asked him to tell me more about where he was fishing and what the brooks were like, so I got some lines. And we made, laid the lines out on the grass so they were just as thick as the brook. And I said, it's as wide as the brook. And I said, so you're worried about getting caught in a back cast. Well, why don't you do this? You know, let me show you a curve cast and how it will work. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, if I just, you know, take my, uh, just this cast this way and just snap it like that, just turn my wrist a little tad, why that line will just float up to the right. And if I turn it the other way, it'll float down to the left. Let me try that. And he tried one to the right and one to the left, and he started to reel his line in. And he, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting ready to go home. That's all I wanted to know. Oh, yeah, right? I said, That may be what you wanted to know, but uh, let's practice it a little bit more because it, it, it isn't easy, but it's something that you'll learn to do. You did it with trade Teaching is so much fun. Can
0: I share a story? Yeah. So I was, uh, I was in Chile and uh, we had stopped to take lunch. I was being guided, actually, on a trip, which was really fun. And uh, the guy said, Well, if you want to fish, go ahead. And so the guy I was with was casting out into the water, into the river. But there was a tributary coming in, and I decided to just walk up. And like you described, little tiny brook, not even as wide as the room you and I are sitting in. And I look, and there is about a you know eighteen or twenty inch brown trout, but no room to cast. So mm-hmm. I think back on the Gary Borger presentation book of the bow and arrow cast. Fantastic. So I grab my beetle and I load. I get the rod loaded, which is to say it's bent. I'm holding the fly in my left hand, making sure I don't have the barb hook in my finger. And I release it, and that itself, the bow and arrow cast, shoots the beetle out into the little pool where I'm standing next to, lands, and what happens?
1: Yeah, fish grabbed it. Grabbed ah, it. Yeah. Isn't that and, yeah, and that's
0: something? And that was a solution to a problem that somebody else came up with. I'm not a smart guy. I just study what other smart people have taught me.
1: Yeah, but what you just demonstrated is that, that the secret is that the line will always go, follow, the tip of the rod every time and since you pulled it back a little bit and uh, that rod bent a little bit that's what's going to give it the action to pull that line right out there and it works like a charm isn't yeah. that funny it's so, great it's easy. such a small thing yeah but
0: fun. i mean if, if you don't read these books uh, and study it you don't really open it up you know for yourself and i know you've done a tremendous what's your books you must have an uh, expansive library rod
1: too many Because, you know, um, at an older age, no, I know how many I have. I have 357. (laughs) And and because I counted them, because I thought to myself, well, you know, you're getting to be older, should you donate them, should you sell them? And and so I decided to catalog them all. And I decided to do the same thing with all the videotapes that I've got, including some VHS tapes, which, you you know, I say, how are people going to use these? Well, they can transfer them a little bit. But that's what gets me going. But I, but I love when I'm tying a fly or when I'm getting ready to go fishing myself, saying, let's see what do I want to do. Who wrote about that? Hmm. Was it kind was it happily? And you go to look things up like that, and that just makes a tremendous amount of fun. It's really yeah, a lot of fun. It is. Yep. So I think
0: um, one thing that we haven't talked about is, I loved, you know, I've watched you teach a bit, and... I love how you picked up an interesting teaching tool for beginners. And it
1: was, uh, pick up the phone, hello, it's for you. Explain that. I actually got that idea from Jason Borger, Gary Borger's son. And uh, if you'll you'll consider the fact that we've all used phones, and we're so used to using uh, our our cell phone, if you'll just lift it up, and if you'll pretend that you're going to take it to your ear to answer it, and if you move it up toward your ear, that's where you should stop on the back cast. And that's your pickup. Yeah, that that's yeah. your pickup and you say hello. But then there's a person standing right there and you say it's for you and if they're just two feet away from you you go to hand it for them and your arm is already in the position where it should be when you stop the cast on that forward cast when you stop the rod on that forward cast. And that helps people see where they should be. Because it's, it, it it's a learned skill. It absolutely is. And the interesting thing about it is that it is the gradual movement of that that bends the rod. And that rod line follows the tip of the rod as it is bending, and that's what really makes it work. Yeah. And the more that you can do that precisely so that that line moves in a straight line, like I can see the picture on the wall behind you, yes. that's just beautiful. Thank you. The more that you can move it so that that rod tip moves in a straight line path, the more likely it is that you'll have the narrow loop that you want to deliver the fly more precisely more effectively. Yeah. That loop its more narrow, it'll cut through the wind, it'll have enough energy to deliver the fly and let that line straighten out. So that you can just let it go right there. And There's a connection. There
0: is, and I think it, just for the audience, too, to understand, the, the big difference between, why, why are we talking about fly casting, right? Well, the big difference between fly casting and spin fishing or spin casting is the lure has weight with a spinning rod, and the line has none. Whereas with fly casting, it's very often that the fly has very or no weight, and it's the line's weight that is carrying it. So what Rod and I are talking about is this delicate dance of keeping this weighted line in the air in two directions: back cast and the forward cast. And it's just mesmerizing to watch, don't you yeah, agree? You bet
1: it is. Because it, you bet it is. Because the fly is just like an insect that's just made out of some feathers and feathers and some thread and a little tiny hook. Doesn't weigh very much at all, but the line has weight. And your movement of that line is what helps the fly get delivered like it looks like something natural that's landing on the water. And that's what makes it so much fun. Because first you have to say, well, what are they eating? And you can feel around the bushes, you can look in the water, you can look under rocks to see what it is that they're eating. And then you can just stop and say for a minute now, what fly am I going to use? And you're really imitating something that's in the water there, that or landing on the water. That that's what I need: ants or beetles. Isn't yeah. that a lot of fun to fish an ant uh, or a beetle? Wow. Yeah, I terrible. And on a windy day, when, when all of a sudden the wind comes up and you say, "Gosh, I'm going to have to stop fishing." It's blowing ants out of the trees that are on the side of the stream of the pond, and, and uh, automatically you say, "I think I've got a couple of ants in my fly box," and you hope you yeah. have. Yeah. Let's talk about women
0: as fly casters, Rod.
1: Oh, they're great ones. They really good. Why is it? Um, they have patience. Yes. And they have understanding. Yes. One, women don't try to overpower things as no, much they as men do. And as a result, uh, they quickly learn to be a better caster, faster, smoother than a man might. Because a man is always trying to overpower something. That's right. And, and ladies don't. And uh, um, Evelyn King was very dominant in Maine in promoting uh, fly casting for women. And she organized a, a group, a branch, so to speak, in the Sebago chapter of Trout Unlimited with oh, just a handful of ladies. I think they're over 125 now. Oh, that's incredible. Isn't that something? Yeah, I've got to get Sherry involved in that. Yeah, that's really something because uh, uh, they're unique. And interestingly enough, um, LL Bean runs some programs for women only with women fly casting instructors. Yeah. All certified and all teaching just women. And the women are much more comfortable saying, oh, here's somebody that's doing this, and this is a lady teaching me. Why don't I let her teach me? And that's a lot of fun to do. And my daughters, you know, they find it easier to learn from a lady than they might from me. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't that funny how that works? I've had many fantastic
0: and certified casting instructors bring their children or their wife to me. You should never teach your wife to ski. As an example, right? So, and, and you know, to your point about um, what it takes to be a fly caster, I mean, people who don't know me, I'm five nine, I weigh 150 pounds. Mac Lord is the same. Yes, right. Neither he or I are going to win any uh, uh, arm wrestling matches with anybody, but both of us can throw the entire fly line. Yes, you can. Because we understand how to use the rod.
1: Yeah, and yeah.
0: that's uh, that's why women are so good at it. They yeah. what women want to work their 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 mind comes to the solution where for men they think muscle's going to be the solution
1: yeah but it isn't it's never no it isn't no it isn't and women women get that right away because they've never never been ones who've been working on the muscle Yeah. yeah and it's a lot of fun to watch them do that um there have been a couple of times when they've had so many ladies want to be in a class that they've had to call a man in and um it's really funny because I have been that man and my colleague and friend Dave Jacobson has been that man and we both say it, it really feels awkward at first until you say, I'm here to help you be better and Sue or Gwen or Laurie is going to tell us what to do and how to do it and I'll help you get it done and it's fun to do that, it really yeah. is yep. yeah. a lot of fun, good time Robert, what else should we talk about that we haven't spoken about yet? Fly fishing is fun, it really is and people would do well if they try it because it slows things down it's easy to do it's relatively easy to understand and it's a tremendous amount of fun the other the other thing is that the fishing gets as much fun as it is is the observation it's quiet peaceful not a lot of people around you can peek and you can poke and you can observe and it's very relaxing very relaxing. And it's a life sport. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm 85, still doing it. Exactly, and I love doing it. Yeah, yeah. I um, wanted to go. I wanted to. I thought about casting yesterday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Just because uh, all of a sudden the sun was out, got a little warm, but it also got quite windy. And I said, no, I think I'll finish walking the dog. Can you cast right where you live, Rod? Yes, I can. Yeah. So do you keep a rod strung up most of the time? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I do mean, too. It's an easy thing to do. Yeah. Uh, my wife Priscilla is a very uh, patient lady and and very competent, but I've kept a garage strung. I mean, a rod strung in our garage for sixty years. Right. Because if I'm out at the car and we're getting ready to go someplace and she isn't quite out of the car, I can take the rod out of the garage and I can make a half. a doesn't cast on the lawn. Waiting for her to come out uh, I, and then put it right back in the garage. Yeah. You know, when I was fine. When I was working, uh, you know, with
0: basic casting certification, thinking about getting my master's. I would spend hours and hours and hours on. A, I'm not talking about fishing. I'm talking about standing on a lawn, fly yep. casting, because it's fun. Absolutely is. Absolutely is. I enjoy it. I still it. love doing it. Yeah. Yep. And yep. our friend Bob Dion and I, uh, we just were we were like buddies. You know, we go out together. and say, Hey, try this. Hey, hey try that. You know, give us a challenge. Yeah. You know, do this, do that. It's fun. And put I put little targets out. Put little targets out. A lot, lot of fun. To get do. the hula yep. hoops out on the lawn. Try to hit the target. And, yep. A lot of fun. Rod, it's been a pleasure to have you on the uh, the podcast. I know we could, again, go on forever. I say that a lot to a lot of people, but we've had a lot of experiences together. And I really, I, again, I, I want to thank you for everything that you've brought to my life um, in my career, because you've taught me a lot, especially in the fly casting. But uh, well, we'll have
1: some more. We will. We have. Yeah. We've got lots of time to do it, and uh, we're going to do it. That sounds great. Thanks, Thanks again, Goodbye.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside
1: FM.